All right, well, we are continuing our Around the Table series, and I am going to read today's scripture found in John 21, uh, 1 through 17. If you have a Bible, go ahead, flip that open. It will also be on the screen for you to follow along. Um, I encourage you to, to close your eyes if you need to soak and um, meditate in this scripture. It's good to read um, this chunk of scripture in its whole. All right, here we go, friends. Starting verse 1, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter Thomas, uh, Simon Peter Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard them say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The, other's disciples, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. The passage in its entirety before uh, we take a few moments to talk about it and just see the big picture of what just happened. Uh, Hope City, it's great to be together. Uh, it's great to be here, and we are nearing the conclusion of our time around the table. We've been in it now. This is our seventh week getting around the table, uh, and then soon we will get around a tree, as they say, right, with Christmas? Huh? Yes. And uh, during this series, we've been uh, looking at these life-changing moments that happen around the table, around meals, with friends, and faith, and food. You put those elements together, and Life change happens, and uh, looking at these experiences, you know, Jesus teaches us around the table. Jesus uh, 
He, he shows us what humility is around the table. He teaches us to be generous around the table. He brings diversity around our table. He uh, does the miraculous. Next week, we're going to talk about the miraculous table that we gather around. And today, we're talking about this idea of gathering around a restored table, that Jesus restores us. And that word restores gets me uh, thinking this week about furniture restoration, right? Kind of the DIY, Pinteresting type of life. How many of you enjoy restoring things like furniture? Anybody, right? You go to a yard sale, you go to a curb, you go to Goodwill, you see something. Maybe some of you don't like furniture. Maybe you like cars. You like to restore cars, right? If you want to restore a 2011 Ford F-150, you can restore my car as much as you want, like with restored oil changes and restored tires. And No? It's, an, it's a classic. It's 2011. You should restore it. No. Uh, but restoring furniture, I mean, you think about what happens when we, when we see something. And I always like the idea of restoring something, kind of this picture that we see from, from garbage to, uh, to precious, right? And there's been times where we've been at yard sales or people have been getting rid of things or we've been at Goodwill and we've seen pieces of furniture. And we're like, yeah, let's restore that. That looks great. And then it just sits in our house and it never gets restored. And it just seems to store things, not get restored. And it, it collects things and becomes a clutter bucket of things uh, that, that end up in our house. And I'm always amazed that people have this ability to see the potential to see something so decrepit or moldy or broken or chipped or, or uh, destroyed, and they see the potential of what it could become, what it would be like to revamp it and, and, and put that energy into it to see it come to fruition. And, and, and I applaud people that have that ability not just to see it, but actually do it. Because <laughs> sometimes I can see it. How many of you are like that, right? I can see it, but then I don't do it. So then I actually never really see it. Uh, but when we look at Jesus, it's amazing because he takes people in that, same, in that same way. All of us have been in garage sale states of life, curbside states of life, garbage dump states of life. And he takes us from that broken, rusty, decrepit state, and he restores us. He refinishes us. He revamps us. And that's what we see happen at this meal. This is a life-changing meal for Peter. He's restored Let's ask the question, why does Jesus need to be restored? Not why does Jesus, why does Peter? Jesus doesn't need to be restored. He's resurrected. He's good. Why does Peter need to be restored? Jesus is the one restoring. Why does Peter need to be restored? Ponder that uh, for a moment. Thinking about Peter and his story, when we see him in this context, Peter, up until this point, has been following Jesus faithfully for the last few years, and then he fails. He messes up. He runs away from Jesus by doing what? Denying him three times when Jesus needed him the most. What did Peter do? He said, no, no, I don't know this guy. No, no, I'm not affiliated with this guy. No, that's not my friend, right? He's petrified of the idea of being associated with him. And so Peter has messed up. In fact, Peter's denial, I found it interesting learning this. Peter's denial is one of the few moments that's talked about in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the few moments in, in, in the ministry and life of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels. All four authors recorded Peter's denial. Peter's probably like, yeah, thanks, guys, right? Not all four Gospels. Four Gospels don't even talk about the birth of Jesus. Only Matthew and Luke do. 
Mark and John don't even talk about the birth of Jesus. All of them talk about the crucifixion differently. Apparently, I got Siri's attention with that one. <laughs> She's giving me an amen. Hallelujah. But you think about the Gospels, like they couldn't even get the birth narrative all on the same page. But Peter's denial, they all included that. Peter has hit rock bottom. And I, I think we can all relate to Peter at different moments in our life where we have failed, where we have hit that rock bottom, where we sin, where we choose ourselves, where we run away. And we hit that point where I feel like that old rusty table sitting on the curb. And it won't be hard for us to, to, to think about a moment like this, but I want us to think of a moment where we feel like we failed Jesus. And it's not for us to, to beat ourselves up, but to just be honest and acknowledge there are moments in our life where we feel like we failed God. We should have known better. We could have done better. We could have been better. I could have been somebody, right? No? No Marlon Brando fans in the room. I could have been a contender. But like Peter, we make mistakes. We selfishly choose our own plans. We try to preserve ourselves. and We make decisions, and we hit these moments. And as, as Peter is processing all of this, Jesus then is resurrected. Peter has seen him, and yet what is Peter's response? Where do we find Peter right before this meal? What is Peter doing? not hanging out with Jesus. What is he doing? He's gone fishing, right? Peter is at the rock bottom of, of, of life right now. He's denied Christ. Christ is back alive, and, and yet he's not hanging out with him. He's fishing. He's out fishing. John 21, 3, I'm going out to fish. Like, this is not some masculine stereotype, okay? This is his life. This is his familiar spot. This is his comfort zone. Before he met Jesus, where did Peter spend all of his time? Fishing. He's a fisherman. And so he's going back to what is familiar, his job, his occupation, his comfort zone. He's reverted back to that. Well, I guess I failed that whole Jesus thing. I'll go back to this. This is what I know. I guess I'm not good enough to do this anymore. Give me the nets. I'll do that. And to think about our own journeys and, and processing those things, we, we have moments where we feel like we have failed Jesus. We've let him down. We've messed up. We've run away from him. And I would be curious to hear your responses. Curious for us to process it for a moment. What do we run to? We don't always run to a fishing boat. But what do we run to? What, we run to the familiar. We run, run to what we can control. We run to what brings us comfort, things, distractions, escapes. We run to more sin. We run to what we used to do. Because that didn't work out. And as Peter's fishing, let's think about this. What is Peter feeling? Not just what's he doing. We know that he's out there, he's fishing. He's throwing the net out, he's hanging out on the boat, doing that. But what is Peter feeling inside? Think about all those emotions that he's processing through. What is Peter feeling as he's fishing? I, I, I'm thinking about Peter this week and, and thinking he's probably feeling like a failure. 
like a disappointment. He's probably feeling this unshakable shame and regret. Peter is a lot like my dog, Goose, right? How many of you have a dog at home, right? I, I, we have this little golden doodle, Goose, because our son's name is Maverick, uh, and, and Goose uh, is a great dog. She's hypoallergenic. She's potty trained. She, she's got it all, yeah, right? Except for in the last year, she has discovered the joy of the garbage can. And Goose enjoys when we are gone, that's garbage time, right? So she doesn't do it when we're home. She like knows, like, everyone's home. I'm not getting into the trash. But once we leave, we come home and there's garbage cans tipped over. There's wrappers everywhere. There's just everything is everywhere, all over the living room, right? And then we walk in and we see it. And our kids do this too. They have this parental tone in their voice now. I don't know. They've learned it from mom and dad. They're like, Goose, right? Probably because we've done it to them. Maverick, Evie. And they go, Goose. And Goose does this. She just lowers her head and sticks her butt out and puts her tail between her legs. She knows. She knows. It's not just the fact that there's like old hamburger wrappers and garbage and things spread out all over the couch and the carpet. There is. But she just knows. All we had to do was say her name, and she just, no, woe is me. I'm so sorry. I wonder if Peter feels a lot like my dog. I know I messed up. I failed the test. I did what I said I would never do. I mean, Peter denied his denial to Jesus' face. He said, I would never do that. And then he did. And I wonder if he's on that fishing boat with his tail between his legs, with his head down, and he feels like, I'm never going to be good enough. Jesus said I was going to be a rock for his church. But I guess I, I'm not that rock. I'm that wavering reed. I'm blown in the wind. I am just here. I'm not good enough. And after a night of fishing or really fishless fishing, as John records, which is what I call Sean fishing. Uh, that's, this is, I'm, I'm like the disciples in that regard. I can spend all night fishing and not get anything. Uh, after a night of fishless fishing, so really just sitting on a boat, Jesus gives them some advice from the shore, and he tells them to cast their nets to the other side, and then they get what? A boatload of fish, right? Just a ton of fish, and, and John tells Peter, hey, that guy on the shore, that's Jesus. Like, Peter still didn't get it. And he's told, that's Jesus. And he begins to connect some dots. Because in that time, man, they, they believed in a, a boatload of fish, a full net of fish was what? It was a blessing from God. Because they couldn't do it themselves. So it was God's blessing upon them. So he's thinking about this, and he hears that that's Jesus. He sees this boatload of fish. Oh, man, this is a blessing for God. And then think about it. He's remembering, wait a second, this has happened before. Jesus at another time stood on the shore and told us, put our nets on the other side of the boat. And what happened? We got a whole boatload of fish. This is happening. He's remembering these moments. He's remembering Jesus' words. I mean, you had to think it flashed through his mind when Jesus said, you will no longer be a fisher of fish, but you will be a fisher of men. And despite everything that has happened, despite all the shame and regret and remorse and not feeling good enough, he in that moment is thinking, Jesus is still on my side? Jesus is still for me? And so his response is awesome. What is Peter's response? He jumps all in, like literally. 
Jumps all in, right? Puts his robe back on and jumps in. John 21, 7. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Peter goes all in. He goes full Forrest Gump, jumping off the boat to see Lieutenant Dan. You guys remember that scene, right? Where Forrest is just like, hey, Lieutenant Dan, and then he jumps off, right? He's just, ah! I tried to rip that off of YouTube. I couldn't, so I had to reenact it for you. It was better. But you remember that scene? Forrest comes up to him, and he's just like on the dog, like, Lieutenant Dan, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm going to be, I'm testing my sea legs. You don't have no legs, Lieutenant Dan. Right? Peter is full forest. He just jumps all in. He's just so excited. He jumps into the water, and him jumping into the water, I think, shows you a part of his heart as well. As much shame and remorse and regret and disappointment and awkwardness. Think about awkward that would be to be face-to-face with the guy that you told him you wouldn't deny him and that you did. You think it's awkward to see somebody at Fred Meyer that you don't like anymore? You ever do that? Like, oh, we're going down this aisle. (laughs) I don't even need cereal. We're going down this way. He's battling all that awkwardness and that shame and that embarrassment, and he's wrestling with all of that, and yet he jumps into the water, fully jumps into the water. Nothing is going to impede him. And I think what it shows me, and I hope it shows us, is no matter how far we've run away from God, we can still run back to him. No matter how far we feel that we've run away from Jesus, we can still run back to Jesus. And he runs to Jesus, and he does what? He eats with him. He has a meal with them. They sit on the shore of the beach, and they have breakfast. John wrote, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. Come and have breakfast. Why? Why does he have breakfast? Right? He doesn't go into, well, hey, Peter, we need to talk. He starts with a meal. You think about a meal. Meals are emblematic of a restored relationship. Think about in movies when you see the runaway kid come home. What do the parents do in the movies? They wrap a blanket around the kid. They welcome him back to the table. They give him a hot mug or something, right, or a bowl or something. That meal restores them. Even in Jesus' teaching with the uh, prodigal son, Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Very famous teaching moment with Jesus and and the son that runs away from home and then comes back to his father. And what does the father do? What does the father do for the prodigal son? He throws him a party. He has a meal. He gives him the fattened calf and they have dinner together. It's a celebration of restoration. Like meals are emblematic of a restored relationship. This idea of sitting around the table with these people despite hard feelings and resentments and difficulties and, and things that they fought about, disagreed about, you've hurt me, I blah, 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 blah. They're sitting around the table and it's this picture of unity. And so this meal setting begins to show the restoration process that's about to take place. You are welcome to eat with Jesus. You are to be restored and united with Jesus. And we're seeing that not just in his actions, but then they shift the conversation into the nitty-gritty, into this 
conversation that Jesus has with Peter begins to foster that restoration beyond just their actions of sitting together. There is something very restorative about sitting together at a meal. And it's over that meal that they have a conversation. I wanted to reread some of that conversation. It says in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. Because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. What's fascinating about Jesus is he doesn't ignore the difficult conversation that's going to take place. He's not like me that wants to ignore the awkward. Anybody have awkward conversations around the dinner table, right? And those of us that don't like confrontation, we'll just ignore it. Anybody? Right? I'll just, we'll sidestep that one. How's the weather? It's crappy. So's our relationship. But let's not talk about that. Jesus talks about it. Think if he hadn't talk about, talked about it. What would have that done to Peter? Peter's dealing with all of these emotions and feelings and, and embarrassments and failures and, and, and shame and all of this. And if Jesus hadn't brought this up, if they had just eaten their meal and like, all right, see you later, what is Peter going to do? Is he going to be left with this constant state of feeling like a failure? That no matter what I do, I'm not going to be good enough hanging like a rain cloud over his head. I'm not good enough. I'm never good enough. If he doesn't talk about it, does Peter then swing that pendulum to another extreme where he becomes a perfectionist? Well, fine, if I'm not good enough, I'm going to be perfect in everything that I do. Think of the perfectionism that would have driven Peter if they don't have this conversation. And yet Jesus doesn't ignore the conversation. He also doesn't berate or condemn or throw a bunch of correction at Peter in that moment. He doesn't bring such a heaviness to it and just point out all that he's done wrong and his failings and this is how you failed me and you're a failure and you failed and you failed and you failed. You're a loser. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He asks him three questions that are almost identical. He doesn't ignore the problem. He doesn't get harsh on the problem. But he asks him these three questions very simply. Do you love me? Do you love me? One time he even asked uh, Peter the question, and he asked him in a way where he adds this phrase at the end, and, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And you picture him eating breakfast, they're finished, they're sitting around the campfire with all the other disciples, and he's looking at Peter, uh, who was also named Simon. Notice he doesn't call him Peter in this moment. He revert, reverts back to calling him Simon. And they're sitting around the table, and he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Imagine the other disciples, like, hey! But if you think about Peter, that's a big question. 
Because throughout Jesus' ministry, Peter has been fighting for position, jockeying for elitism and spiritual positioning, and, and constantly bickering with the other disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. In fact, when they're at the Last Supper and Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me, what does he respond? I would never do that. Basically saying, these guys might, these are a bunch of losers, but I will not deny you, Jesus. I'm all in, man. I'm the guy. And then a little girl scares him off and he denies Jesus, right? That's what's crazy. He asks him this question, do you love me more than these? And Peter doesn't even acknowledge the fact that he's included all of them. And I think what Peter's response by just saying, yes, Lord, I love you, not yes, I am so much better than John, is to say, there's no more superiority. There's no more cockiness. He has developed a humility to say, it's not a competition. I'm not competing with these guys. We're on the same team. Jesus, I love you. I do. I love you. You begin to see the transformation that has taken place in him. And he asks him this question three times to the point where Peter becomes bothered. Why are you doing this? And scholars will debate it was interesting reading about it. They debate the, the Greek words used for love when Jesus says, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And there's different Greek words used, and, and they try to figure out, and, and maybe, maybe there is a difference in what Jesus is trying to get at, what Peter's saying. But the one thing the scholars can agree on is that he denied him three times, and he affirmed his love for him three times. He said, I don't know you, I'm not affiliated with you, I'm not your guy. And then three times he said, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I don't think it's about a formula. It's not like you have to keep score. Like, Jesus, I denied you six times, so I have to say I love you six times. Okay? It's not what it's about. But I think what it is, you ever affirmed somebody and they didn't hear you? You ever said you love you? I love you? And they're like, yeah, okay. You ever said, hey, you're doing a really good job? And they're like, uh-huh. And they kind of brush it off. You ever been around in conversation? Maybe you're that person that brushes up. You can't accept kind words or thank yous or gratitude. And you almost have to get in their face, eye to eye, and say, I love you. You're doing a great job. I've had to have people tell me that. Multiple times. Like, they have to repeat it. Sean, I love you. I care about you. I'm proud of you. And it's in that repetition that what begins to happen. You finally hear it. You finally recognize it's true. I'm a big movie guy, and I, I, I think of this scene. Again, I couldn't rip this scene off of YouTube. Stupid YouTube. But it reminds me of the scene out of Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon's character is told by Robin Williams, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he's just like, yeah, I know it's not my fault. It's not your fault. I know, I know it's not my fault. And he repeats it multiple times and he breaks. And they share this moment together. And I just picture Jesus, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And it just hits him. 
yes, I love you. And Peter in these moments, or in this moment, is discovering a truth that I think is relevant and applicable to us today, that Jesus doesn't give up on us, even when we've given up on him and given up on ourselves. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't give up on you, even though you've given up on him and you've given up on yourself. Should I say it one more time? I mean, Jesus is a repetition. Jesus doesn't give up on us, even though we give up on Jesus and we give up on ourselves. I think we need to remember those things. We need to soak in those things. He hasn't given up on you. And if there was somebody to give up on, it was Peter. If there was somebody to give up on, it was me. It was you. I mean, it was all of us. But he doesn't. And that is the depth of his kind of love, a love that restores. And Peter is stating his devotion. He's declaring his devotion to Jesus. And Jesus responds with these three statements that are very similar, saying, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. And these three statements, again, give us a glimpse into the restoration process that's happening for Peter. It's more than just, hey, Peter, I love you. It's, I'm restoring you. You gave up on your calling for, for a moment. You went back to fishing. Guess what? You're meant to feed my sheep. You're meant to lead my sheep, take care of my sheep, feed them. You're a fisher of men. You see, when we fail, we give up on our identity and, and our calling and, and our purposes in God, and we just want to revert back to what's familiar. Well, that God thing just didn't work out for me. And part of our restoration is a, is a restoration to our identity. This is who I am. I am a child of God. I am called to go and make disciples. All of us are. He's redefining and restoring Peter back to say, go and feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. This is who you are. You've messed up, but you're not a mistake. You've run away. But now you're restored. Don't abandon your calling. Don't abandon your identity. Don't just retreat and go back to the familiar. This is who you really are. And I think that restoration that Peter experiences is, that's my hope for all of us. For each person in this room, for each person watching online, for each person that is a part of our church, is my hope is that we understand we fail. I think we're, we, we can learn that lesson pretty quick. But my heart is that this is a church. We are a church. We are a people of God that create a safe place for people to have breakfast with Jesus on the beach. For Jesus to ask you that question, do you love me? For us to recognize our failings and our mistakes and have an honest conversation with our God and say, yes, I've messed up, but I do love you. Create a safe space where people don't feel judged and in competition. They don't feel criticized. They don't feel compared. 
We know we fail. We know we make mistakes, but we can have this quiet space with Jesus to have that conversation, to be restored by Jesus, restoring our identity, restoring our calling, restoring our purposes, restoring our relationship with our God. And that's, that's the kind of environment we strive to make here on Sunday mornings or any time we are together. In big groups, small groups, gathered groups, scattered groups, whatever it is, wherever you go, you can be a conduit of that restoration. And the idea here is that when we gather around the table, restoration can take place. People that feel far from God can experience the closeness of God. And, and there's a question that a friend of mine, a couple of friends ask me periodically when checking in on me, and they'll call me, and they'll just ask me this question. They'll ask, how are you in Jesus? And I think this is a great question, and I want to give this to you as a question to ask people when you're sitting around the table with people, whether it's your spouse, your family, your friends, your roommate, uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever, your parents, how are you and Jesus doing? Now, this is an awkward question if they don't go to church or don't believe in Jesus or don't have a relationship with Jesus. But what we're talking about here is this idea of the restoration process that God can do in our lives. And some of us wonder, well, how do I bring that up? How do I show them or, or initiate that conversation to believe in them and, and show them that they're loved by God? Ask that question, because when I have friends and mentors ask me that question, it is way better than, hey, how's it going? How you doing? That's a terrible question, isn't it? Hey, how are you? About as good as the weather. But when somebody says, how are you and Jesus doing? It is so much more than my calendar and my schedule and my feeling. It is my soul. How is my soul? When they ask me, how are you and Jesus doing? It engages me in a conversation that is so much more than the shallow superficial. Think about if the disciples were sitting on that boat with Paul, or Peter, Paul wasn't there, sitting on that boat with Peter and said, hey, Peter, how are you and Jesus right now? What would he have said? He would have probably just spewed a bunch. But it would have initiated this processing of the pain and the failure and the feelings and the emotions and what's going on. And when we get to engage that question around the table with safe, vulnerable, trusting people, loving people, gracious people, it engages us in a conversation where we begin to open up about our reality. How are you and Jesus right now? Not good. What's going on? What's not good? What's going on? And so I, I want to end with that question right now. And I'm not going to ask you to share with anybody in the room. I'm not going to ask you to get on a microphone and share. I'm just simply going to give you that question for you and Jesus to ponder that. How are you and Jesus doing right now? And that is posed with humility and care and support. And I want to just give you a moment right now where you're seated. You can just close your eyes. You can just have a quiet moment with Jesus. And how are you and 
How are you and him? I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to give you a moment right where you're at. How are you and Jesus doing? Jesus, right now, I just pray for all of us. You know the stories represented of those in the room or those watching online, and I just pray right now for all of us, God, that you, you see our mistakes, you see our failures, you see our detours. And we, we just we give you all of those things. We surrender our lives to you and, and the pieces where we feel fractured, where we feel broken. God, if we feel distant and far away from you in these moments, I pray right now that you would take those and restore. Take our lives and restore them as you restored Peter. And you gave him a fresh new beginning. We pray that today is a beginning a new beginning, a fresh start. I thank you that you have not given up on any of us. There is no one in this room and no one watching online that you have given up on. Your love is vast. It is wider and deeper than any of our mistakes, any of our rebellion, any of our brokenness. Your love restores your love redefines, your love redirects and repurposes. God, I pray that you would restore your people today. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.